0: You're going to love this. Just love it. Yes, please.
1: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight I got the feeling that something right I'm so scared in case I fall off
0: my chair Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles. This is your broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in LA. 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast. On the Progressive Voices Channel coast to coast and around the globe on Netroots Radio Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not Radio Free Brooklyn KPFK.org and of course Radio Sputnik five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman your friendly investigative blogger journalist, troublemaker, muckraker and all around swell fellow from bradblog.com here with you for another action-packed Adventure and uh, boy, I've been—I'll I'll tell you what—we, uh, <laughs> I've been working on—I've uh, been sort of going down a rabbit hole for the past few hours working on a story for uh, hopefully for for tomorrow's broadcast, and um, it all kind of creeps me out and uh, and confuses me, and uh, so I'm in the kind of mood before we even get to our interview uh, in, in a bit with uh, Steve Horn from Dismog Blog. I'm I'm gonna kind of. Uh, b- blow things up. I'm going to have a little fun here at the top. I'm going to uh, give you a couple of stories that make me smile because I need it today. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, there are two judges, two judges in very important cases. These are U.S. federal judges uh, in, in very important cases concerning the Keystone XL s- pipeline Southern Leg. And I don't think a lot of people realize uh, that there is a southern leg to the Keystone XL pipeline and that it is already built and it is already operational. Uh, Desi Doyen, of course, is here as usual, my co-host on the Green News Report and my uh, producer on the broadcast here. I, I don't know that. Do, do you think that people understand that much of, if not most of the Keystone XL pipeline is already up there and running? It's not waiting on the decision from the White House.
1: That's right. Uh, and I think most of that has to do with the way that it's been covered in the corporate mm-hmm. media, because, of course, we covered the southern right. leg of the Keystone we XL did. pipeline as it was being built, as protesters in Texas, especially eastern Texas, were trying to prevent that southern leg from being built, which, because it's you know wholly contained within the continental U.S., did not require a special presidential permit like the northern leg that's still proposed and still on hold requires well, it, a permit from the president and the State Department. The, the State Department the border right. with Canada.
0: It, it didn't require a State Department approval, but it did uh require some kind of approval. And we're it gonna sure talk did. about that with, with Steve Horn because two judges uh on the cases that were challenging the way the southern leg of the KXL was was approved, uh and and not just that pipeline, but thousands of other related pipeline projects um, these two judges failed to recuse themselves from these cases despite big investments in the oil industry and uh, and they it, it, when you look at it it looks as if they stood to profit from this uh, from the Keystone XL pipeline being built and yet they weren't challenged on this they didn't recuse themselves. Uh, and so Steve Horn did some digging into this and how uh, these decisions these court decisions have allowed the oil industry to, sort of subvert long-standing environmental protection reviews that have otherwise been in place for projects like this since the 70s. But this was done completely differently, and it was seemingly done with the uh, approval of President Obama. So Steve Horn from DeSmog Blog, he'll be here to talk about that investigation into that matter and those two judges in a bit, but now I'm going to uh, cheer myself up, if that's okay. Uh, the uh, this is a story from Oklahoma uh, and a gun store uh, in, in Oklahoma. This is reported by a news on six down dot com, a, a, a local uh, affiliate out there, local uh, news outlet down there. Uh, this gun shop, this local gun shop, has put a sign on their front door that says, "quote This privately owned business." is a Muslim-free establishment. We reserve the right to refuse service to anyone. Thank you. Muslim-free is bold. It's all caps. It's underlined. Now, I don't know if that's legal or not. I don't know if you can do that or not. Um, But apparently, since they since they made this announcement, since they put up the sign, this gun shop has been getting... Uh, they claim, in any event, that they're getting all kinds of death threats and this and that. And so uh a bunch of uh, I guess anti-muslim pro-gun activists have showed up at this uh, gun store to uh, to stand guard outside uh, and to, to keep them safe. Well, uh, this came in uh, last night. The Muskegee County Sheriff said a member of the group guarding an O I can't even say it, Octaha gun shop. Accidentally shot himself on Tuesday. Sheriff Charles Pearson said the man dropped his gun and a bullet hit him in the arm.
1: Responsible gun owners.
0: Uh, They're they're guarding the gun shop. The sheriff did not identify the man or offer any other details about what happened. The group of armed citizens and veterans are standing guard outside the, this is what it's called, the gun shop, is called the Save Yourself Survival and Tactical Gear Store.
1: That only works inside the store, not outside the store. Yes,
0: right. Apparently so. Uh, So after the, uh, uh, the owner said they received death threats from all over the world for putting up a sign saying Muslims weren't welcome, the Save Yourself Survival and Tactical Gears door. Sheriff Pearson said, I saw several of those gentlemen out there yesterday. The way they were holding their weapons with their fingers on the triggers... Yeah, I know. You can tell a couple of these gentlemen have no idea about weapons safety. Oh, my. This is the sheriff talking. It's like the Clampets have come to town, he said. Sheriff, uh, Sheriff Pearson told at Muskegee now.com.
1: Except that's unnecessarily insulting to the clampets because yes. they knew how to carry. Yes, a gun. I
0: know. I, this is exactly. And when I tweeted this uh, yesterday, when I tweeted this story, uh, that was the response I got on Twitter. I'll read you some of those responses in a second. But uh, the sheriff uh, said that everybody is entitled to say what they feel and the other people are entitled to tell them how they feel about their opinion. When that gets out of control, that's where we come in. The only thing I ask, if they are true patriots, that when the threats do come or the undesirables do show up, call us and allow us to handle it. So apparently they've gotten no information about these uh, supposed death threats. Uh, there have been no, quote, undesirables who have shown up, except for the undesirables who are guarding the store in the first place and shooting themselves in the arm. And you're right. Uh, Des, when I when I published uh, when I posted that uh, link to that story last night, Paul Gustafson on Twitter said uh, the same thing. He said unfair comparison. The Clampets knew how to handle guns. See, see, you're right. Uh, Bill Mon uh, responded uh, with the quote from the Beverly Hillbillies theme: "And up from the ground come a bubbling crude." He adds, "Sounds like a pretty smart shooting to me." <laughs> and uh, yeah, in fairness, uh, the Clampets were excellent shots. I don't think we should uh, uh, give them. They used to, as I recall, they used to uh, shoot flies for target practice, but only when they were still on the wing because uh, waiting for them to land on the wall would be unsporting. We'll see. There that you was go. The, and they also used to line up matches on the wall and light them oh, yeah. with their shots at 100 yards. I don't know if the folks outside the Save Yourself Survival and Tactical Gear store uh, could do that. But. Well, and,
1: you know, the only thing about this yeah. story that I would just like to add one last thing Please is that do. it's it's, of course, unfortunate that the man shot himself. But that said, it's really a shame that he didn't, you know, that he shot himself in the arm instead of, you know, in the foot. Well, shooting themselves, themselves in the foot. because the we yeah. yeah, Well, that's a, well
0: it's uh, you know what? I, and you're right. It is unfortunate that he shot himself, yeah, and I here mean, I am making light of it. But it's been that kind of a day. Yeah. So there you go. That's uh, and and speaking of uh, making a light of uh, hillbillies and people who apparently, uh, you know, seem to have eaten lead paint. In Maryland, Governor Larry Hogan's top housing official said uh, late last week that he wants to look at loosening state lead paint poisoning laws saying that uh, they could motivate a mother to deliberately poison her child to obtain free housing. What? Have you Yes, yes. So they're they're looking at these these laws, these regulations uh, for lead paint they're, they're too onerous. Uh, this is actually what he said. Kenneth C. Holt, Secretary of Housing, Community and Development in Baltimore, told an audience at the Maryland Association of Counties' summer convention that a mother could just put a lead fishing weight in her child's mouth, then take the child in for testing, and a landlord would then be liable for providing the child with free housing until the age of 18. This is according to the Baltimore Sun. Um, Pressed afterwards for information on this, Holt said, well, he had actually no evidence of this happening ever, But said a developer told him that it was possible. So it was, of course, a developer, a housing developer, telling him, hey, you need to change those lead paint laws. Uh, Holt said, this is an anecdotal story that was described to me as something that could possibly happen. So in other words, no, no mother has ever given a, uh, that we know of, has ever given a lead fishing weight to her child To get free housing until they turn 18. Um, And oh, yeah, there's uh, health advocates, of course, have reacted. They were horrified by this. They said we have uh, this is Dr. Leanna Wen said we have not heard of parents deliberately poisoning their children to get benefits. And then she also went on to, uh, to point out that, no, you don't actually get free housing until you turn 18 if lead is found, if lead paint is found. Ruth Ann Norton, a longtime advocate for reducing lead poisoning, said Holt appears to be confused about what Maryland law actually requires. There is no requirement that they provide shelter until an exposed child turns 18, only that they provide safe housing while lead abatement is underway at the original residence.
1: What's his title again?
0: This is the uh, Secretary of Housing, Community, and Development in the state of Maryland, who now has a Republican governor, recently elected Republican governor, Larry Hogan, in this, let's call it otherwise, blue state, um-
1: So the secretary, yeah. the state's Secretary of, of housing. housing and Public yeah. Health is unclear on the basic regulations over which he is supposed to be uh, that's right in charge.
0: right. Well, all he knows is he wants to loosen them. Because, you know... The tyranny
1: of local regulations that prevent you from poisoning kids?
0: Exactly. Young children up to the age of six are considered most vulnerable to lead, the Baltimore Sun points out. Studies have shown that ingesting even tiny amounts, usually from dust in the air from deteriorated paint, can harm the still-developing brains and nervous systems of young children, leading to uh, learning and behavioral problems, yet... The uh, Republican Secretary of Housing, Community Development in Maryland uh, wishes to relax those regulations. Uh, Digby, our friend Digby, Heather Parton, uh, wrote about this. She was one who called this to my attention. And she said, yeah, you know what else could happen? Above and beyond a mother putting a... Poisoning a her
1: poisoning child poisoning deliberately. her child
0: to get free housing. She says, yeah, and you know what else could, uh, could possibly happen? Some wily developer could see that he was dealing with a bigoted moron and tell him a ridiculous anecdote to feel his pre- to feed his prejudices in order to save himself from being forced to stop killing children and causing brain damage in fact it's fair to guess that mr holt himself may once have eaten some lead based paint chips in his day Digby goes on to add, this is what happens when you elect a Republican to run a Democratic state. They have no personal infrastructure, only wing nutty partisans with which to choose uh, among with 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 which to choose among to run their government. Big problem, she adds. Speaking of wing nutty partisans and big problems, uh, before we uh, get to our break and get to Steve Horn here, Donald Trump. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Speaking no, of which, get no Trumpety. we
0: talked about him yesterday and he was asked on Meet the Press by Chuck Todd, who are his foreign military advisors? After all, he used to claim that uh, Iraq was an enormous mistake. We should have never gone in. We got nothing out of there. But now he wants to send in American troops, apparently, to take back the oil fields from ISIS. What could possibly go wrong? So Chuck Todd... Ask Trump about who are the military advisors working with him on his campaign. Who do you uh, talk to for military advice right now?
2: Well, I watch the shows. I mean, I really see a lot of great, you know, when you watch your show and all of the other shows and you have the generals see, and, you have, and you have certain people. That but you is know there right.
0: somebody Is there go to for you? You know, uh, probably, uh, every, there, are every, yeah, probably there are two or three. has a go-to.
2: Probably there are two or three. I mean, I like Bolton. I think he's you know tough cookie. He knows what he's talking about. Uh, Jacobs is you a mean good Ambassador guy.
0: John Bol- yes, you I mean think Colonel, Jack
2: George, Jacobs. Colonel Jack Jacobs is a good guy, and I see him on occasion. So
0: yesterday, so he gets his he is he's got no advisors. He's got no advisors. He watches the shows. He watches the TV. Yesterday, we talked about he, he named two people there in, uh, named uh, crazy, insane, lunatic ambassador John Bolton, uh, who was, I guess, the U.N. ambassador under George W. Bush, uh, the guy who uh, you know was in the front leading the way for the, for the call to attack Saddam Hussein, claiming that we know that he has weapons of mass destruction. If you were just born yesterday... Uh, Saddam did not have weapons of mass destruction. In any event, uh, and John Bolton thought the war went great. He's happy uh, the Iraq war took place. Uh, no apologies there. And now he wants Israel to uh, to bring a nuclear attack against Iran. No, I'm not kidding. That's John Bolton. That's one of the two uh, guys that, uh, that he named. I went into more details on Bolton yesterday. Uh, but I didn't have time to get to Jack Jacobs, Colonel Jack Jacobs. Uh, who Donald Trump says he's a good guy. I see him on occasion. Well, uh, once again, Mother Jones looked into it. They got in touch with Colonel Jack Jacobs. And uh, David Korn writes, there's just one problem with Trump citing Jacobs as a national security advisor. Jacobs says he has never talked to Trump about military policy. Jacobs tells Mother Jones, I know him, but I'm not a consultant. I'm not certain if he has a national security group of people. I don't know if he does or if he doesn't. If he does, I'm not one of them. He went on to say, I've seen him at a number of functions. But Jacobs adds that he has had no discussions with Trump about national security affairs at those events or anywhere else. Jacobs says he assumes that Trump has watched his appearances on television, which he has. That's it. That's what he knows. That's his uh, uh, military team. His military team is his remote control, and Fox News talking about military issues. Uh, when I brought that point up yesterday, uh, talking about that clip and and John Bolton, uh, Nicole Sandler, our friend uh from our affiliate radio or not.com, uh thought that maybe it ringed may be a ring bell. And and she went back and she found remember the film uh, Being There, that great uh, Oh, with films, Peter, Peter Sellers. Sellers yes. right? Uh the guy who all he did was watch TV. He was uh mentally, mentally deficient. deficient. He was mentally challenged, and everybody thought he was a genius. I, it, it was kind of She found, found this clip from the movie And I remember it now, now that I hear it, uh, it It almost sounds like Donald Trump hears uh, Peter Sellers from, from being there Mr. Gardner, what was your reaction To the post-editorial on the president's speech? I did not read that
1: uh, Sorry to persist, sir But it would be of great interest to me To know just what newspapers you do read
0: I do not read papers I watch TV
1: Do you mean, Mr. Gardner, that you find television's coverage of the news superior to that of the newspapers?
0: I like to watch TV.
1: Thank you, Mr. Gardner.
0: You're welcome. So there you go. There you go. Uh, That's kind of what we now have in Donald Trump. He likes to watch television. He's running for president based on what he sees on the TV machine. The Republicans love it. He has cracked the Republican code. I see no reason at this point why Donald Trump will not be the nominee for the Republican Party for the president of the United States in 2016. He likes to watch. That's all it takes. That's all it takes to convince Republicans apparently these days. All right. A quick break. And we're back with. Steve Horn from DesmogBlog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. I like to watch, and you're listening to the broadcast. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Those of us who are really, really old re- remember the uh, contentious confirmation hearings for uh, for now Justice Clarence Thomas back in 1991 but the, uh, uh, concerning his sexual improprieties and all sorts of things. But there's this uh, huge aspect of it that people... Uh, let's say a couple of dots that people have not connected. And we've talked about it on this show a few times and I'll just bring it up briefly here as we reported back in uh, back in 2011 uh, during those contentious confirmation hearings in 1991 Clarence Thomas received a huge boost when an outside organization ran $100,000 worth of television commercials attacking senators who were threatening to vote against Clarence Thomas's confirmation. Now, $100,000 went uh, much further than I, I suspect it does these days, but in any event, that organization that was propping up Clarence Thomas during those hearings was a newly formed group by the name of Citizens United. Twenty years later, and without either Thomas disclosing it or anyone in the media actually bothering to connect the dots, Thomas decided in favor of the group in the now infamous Citizens United versus FEC case, which has allowed a tsunami of corporate money into our political and electoral system. And it was that decision that then paved the way for corporations to pour virtually unlimited money into 501c4 nonprofits that could, in turn, use that money to affect elections with millions of dollars in campaign ads. And one of the uh, beneficiaries of that decision was a woman by the name of Ginny Thomas. That would be Clarence Thomas's wife. She created one of those 501c4 organizations just after oral arguments In the uh, in the Citizens United case and then somehow managed to raise about five hundred and fifty thousand dollars in about two months just before the end of 2009. Of course, the Citizens United decision then came down the very following month in January of 2010. Now, if you look back at those numbers, you would think, well, Clarence Thomas certainly should have recused himself given the at least at least the appearance of conflict of interest, given the money that he received from this group back in 1991, given the uh, money that his wife stood to make from his decision. But of course, he did not. There are rules for recusal supposedly for judges uh, but they're uh, they're just guidance when it comes, especially when it comes to the Supreme Court. These justices on the Supreme Court can do whatever they want. Let's move the clock a little bit forward to a little bit later in 2010, after the explosion of the uh, uh, Deepwater Horizon in the Gulf, BP's uh, rig out there. Uh, there was an immediate moratorium put on offshore drilling in the wake of that explosion. It seemed to make sense until we could, A, stop the uh, uh, the massive leak that was uh, sullying the Gulf of Mexico at the time, and until we could figure out what actually happened. Well, despite the moratorium that was placed on offshore drilling, a uh, U.S. District Court judge by the name of Martin Feldman, he was a 1983 Reagan appointee to the federal bench. He issued, as we reported at the time in 2010 at uh, Bradblog.com, he issued what on its face would have been uh, regarded as an astounding decision blocking that six-month moratorium on deepwater uh, offshore drilling. He ruled at the time that the Department of Interior had erroneously assumed that because one rig failed, there was an imminent danger of others failing as well. As it turns out, Judge Feldman himself had extensive stock holdings in energy companies that uh, stood to lose money from that moratorium. Those uh, stock holdings in those energy companies included Transocean, which owned the Deepwater Horizon oil rig where the explosion occurred. Halliburton, which performed work at the site, was later found liable for uh, shoddy work on that uh, on that rig. Feldman, also Judge Feldman, also owned stock in two of BP's largest shareholders, BlackRock and J.P. Morgan Chase. And yet he didn't bother to recuse himself from that case. Now let's move the clock forward uh, to, well, just this month. On August 4th of this year, the U.S. appeals court for the 10th Circuit shot down the Sierra Club's petition for rehearing motion for the southern leg of the TransCanada Keystone XL Tar Sands Export Pipeline. According to Desmogblog's Steve Horn, the decision effectively writes the final chapter of a years, uh, years-long legal battle in federal courts, says Horn. But one of the three judges who made the ruling, Bobby Ray Baldock, uh, a Reagan, uh, Ronald Reagan nominee, has tens of thousands of dollars invested in royalties for oil companies with a major stake in tar sands production up in Alberta, Canada. And, of course, that uh, tar sands uh, is currently waiting uh, on the uh, Keystone XL pipeline to be open. It's not waiting. It's it's already coming down from there, coming down via trains. But, man, do they want this Keystone XL pipeline from the north to be opened. Bobby Ray Baldock's uh, fellow Reagan nominee in the Western District of Oklahoma, a predecessor case, uh, Judge David Russell, also has skin in the oil investments game, uh, reports Steve Horn. The disclosures raise questions concerning legal objectivity or potential lack thereof for these judges. And they also raise questions about whether these judges privy to sensitive and often confidential legal details about oil companies involved in lawsuits in a court located in the heart and soul of oil country, whether those judges overstepped ethical bounds. The findings from a De Smog blog investigation Proceed President Barack Obama's expected imminent decision on the northern border crossing leg of the Keystone XL pipeline, reports Steve Horn. Joining us now is Steve Horn, a Madison, Wisconsin-based freelance investigative journalist and writer for Desmogblog.com. His writing has appeared in Vice News, Al Jazeera America, The Nation, Wisconsin Watch, Truthout, Truthdig, Progressive, Counterpunch, and everywhere else. Steve Horn, sir, welcome to the broadcast.
2: Good to be on. Thanks
0: for having me. Uh, thank you, and thank you for your report over at Dismog Blog, because this has been something that has been driving me absolutely nuts for years. The idea that these uh, judges get to choose, it seems, whether to recuse themselves or not, and too often the answer is not. But I want uh, to, and I want to talk about the specifics of the two judges you cited. But before we do let's talk about this southern leg of the Keystone XL pipeline, because that's something that, as I understand, is now finally operational, and uh, people don't know about it. When they hear about the fight over the Keystone XL pipeline, we're talking about, in that case, the pipeline uh, as it crosses from Canada into the U.S., but the southern leg is is up and running, correct?
2: Correct. So that that is open due to a um, March 2012 executive order from, president obama and uh also the the part that relates to this court case is that uh the u.s army corps of engineers uh approved it via something called a nationwide permit 12 which is actually usually only used for small infrastructure projects uh half an acre in size or smaller what they did for the southern half the keystone xl is is pretty much unprecedented in in the history of pipelines they called it uh, up to like two thousand plus single and complete projects through the nationwide permit twelve. So they get they got over two thousand nationwide permit twelve permits basically. Um and that's how they got the Southern leg through. And it, it's an extremely important leg. Um, it connects to the rest of the Keystone Pipeline system. There's mm-hmm. a Keystone one that was approved by President Bush back in two thousand eight. So this Southern leg connects to that in Cushing, Oklahoma. Of course Oklahoma's where this case these both of these cases both at the appeals level and at the district court level took place. But if you look at, uh, I, I wrote about this in the article, basically, mm-hmm. uh, the, the highest amounts of oil uh, in recorded history um, are now at least uh, flowing from the Midwest now down to the Gulf Coast, that is from Cushing, Oklahoma, down to the Gulf Coast. And that's citing uh, Energy Information Administration data. So they've been recording it since 1986. And since then, right now, because of the southern leg, and then there's another pipeline system that I've been writing about a lot that's owned by Enbridge, what I've been calling the Keystone XL clone system, those two pipeline systems are allowing record amounts of tar sands, basically, to flow down to the Gulf Coast right
0: uh, now. I, you must have it wrong, Steve. I've been told over and over again that uh, Barack Obama has a war on oil. So I'm sure you have your facts wrong on this, uh, Steve. How, how <laughs> could we be at a record rate? The, the southern leg of the Keystone XL, that... Uh, while it's up and running, is that necessary? In other words, even if they approved the the Keystone XL, the northern leg essentially would do no good unless they had the southern leg already in place so they can shoot that dirty tar sands uh, oil all the way from Canada down to the Gulf, correct? In other words, these are connected, the southern leg and the northern leg.
2: The Southern Leg and Northern Leg are connected, although uh, the Southern Leg can also connect to the already existing Keystone 1 pipeline that was approved by President Bush back in 2008. So what the what the Keystone XL Northern Leg does is cuts diagonally across the country mm-hmm. uh, in a more efficient way, whereas the Keystone 1 pipeline actually goes through the Midwest, uh, first like on the Great Lakes region, and then makes its way down. So the point of the Keystone XL Northern Leg was to, get there more efficiently and quickly and, uh, you know, get to the Gulf more, I guess. This is much more of a Gulf Coast-Dustin pipeline system, whereas uh, Keystone 1 was, first of all, it was the Midwest, but then it was, uh, you know, Oklahoma in that that area. So it's just different
0: purposes. And the the Southern Leg, which was approved, you say, so the Southern Leg was approved under this permit, what you called nationwide permit 12 that the army corps of engineer okayed and that was thousands of uh uh, the pipelines and infrastructure uh, projects and so forth that were all approved under that one single decision by the army corps of engineers
2: it was all one obviously one pipeline what they did is they they played a, a game of Orwellian rhetoric in which they called it thousands of pieces of infrastructure in order to do something unprecedented, and that is approve something this big under nationwide permit 12. And that was the basically the entire basis of the lawsuit by the Sierra Club and by other environmental groups, the Sierra Club leading the way. And that is that this is unprecedented, and it, it warranted uh, mo- something more. And that is, uh, you know, looking at it, the EPA should have been leading this, and they should have done uh, a NEPA review or National Environmental Policy Act review in which. Uh, there's public hearings and in uh, public comments, and the, and the you know people can get involved. What does what happened with this? It was one of the reasons why none of us have really even heard of the Southern Leg of the Houston Exile, or, or how all this stuff took place. Is what happened behind closed doors, basically happened uh, without public hearings, and that was what kind of the entire premise of the lawsuit. Is that this this is a horrible precedent to set? Um, and looking looking forward, uh, looking at what 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 ensued since then. This same process uh, has taken place with Enbridge's pipeline system for two legs of it, one of them uh, that's still being heard in courts right now Mm -hmm. called the Alberta Clipper in Minnesota, and then another piece of it, the Flanagan South, which uh, the the courts also decided that that was okay. So it looks like Nationwide Permit 12 may be a new route that... uh, oil companies take for controversial projects like Keystone XL and
0: others. Why didn't the southern leg of the Keystone XL have to go through the same environmental review and get the same uh, approval? I guess the State Department had to approve the northern leg. Uh, wh- what makes those two different is, is one, simply because it crosses over the border in Canada and that completely changes, that. therefore it becomes a, an issue of the Department of State. Is that why that had more... And and still has more scrutiny than the southern leg.
2: Absolutely, yeah. That's the reason why it's because it crosses the border, and so the State Department has to make a national interest determination and go through the whole NEPA um, process, as I as I talked about before. And but looking at the tactics that oil companies are using now legally, um, they looked at the Keystone XL northern leg example, and Enbridge is now even for border crossing pipeline, the Alberta Clipper, they basically have successfully usurped that process by kind of like the whole Nationwide Permit 12 thing, but instead of using a Nationwide Permit 12, they just changed uh, pump stations on each side of the border, uh, kind of called them two different pipelines, but they actually both connect. And so now they're Alberta Clipper, which was originally, uh, it was approved by President Obama in 2009, so they're seeking an expansion uh, as of 2012. Well, what they did is said, oh, that's over, we're going to and move pump stations on both sides of the border, and now uh, we don't have to go through that whole uh, pesky uh, process of Keystone XL is now going through. So, I mean, even for border crossings, it looks like the oil, you know, big oil is trying to, usurp that process, that this long-standing NEPA process that has existed since the 1970s.
0: Well, could Barack Obama have stopped any of this? I mean, the Army Corps of Engineers is part of the Army. Uh, yeah. He is the commander-in-chief. Could he have uh, said to them, if he wanted to, no, we're not going to improve this under a nationwide permit twelve. We need this to go under the uh, you call it the NEPA review. The na- mm-hmm. what what does the NEPA stand for again? That's NEPA me-
2: is National National Environmental Policy Act. Okay, it's kind of known as the it's kind of known as the Magna Carta of environmental law. It's like so, a staple of environmental law.
0: And if he wanted to, if the president had wanted to, he could have ordered. The southern leg as well to, to go under the NEPA process and not give that uh, power to the Corps of Engineers, correct?
2: Absolutely. I mean, this was something he, for that, he approved it through an executive order. He called for it. So, yeah, I mean, he did the exact opposite of what you're saying. He he basically told the Army Corps of Engineers to do something like that he called for. It. That was when he went, that was, that was sort of the, that, that executive order came the day after he made a trip to Cushing, Oklahoma, where he was standing in front of a pipe yard, and he was talking about how his administration, that whole infamous saga, the day after that is when he uh, basically presented that executive order.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I I, I want to talk about that uh, in in a moment and sort of the two sides that... Uh, of the street that Barack Obama seems to be playing on all of this, uh, most in focus right now up in the Arctic to a certain extent. We'll get to that in a moment, but let's talk about the conflict of interest uh, that you cited in your article, Steve Horn, over at Desmog blog, uh, j- headlined, Judges Nixing Keystone XL South Cases Had Tar Sands Related Oil Investments. Um who were these judges, and uh, which case were they deciding, and uh, what what investments did they have that they should have, as you argue, uh, and I guess as the Sierra Club argues, recused themselves from these cases?
2: Well, one thing I'll note is that I don't, I don't think the Sierra Club even knew this. I, I wrote this article after the, the cases were decided. I have been following these cases for years, and I just hadn't thought to look at it until it was all over, and I was kind of sick of... Uh, writing articles just about the legal outcomes of the case, and I was wondering, you know, maybe there's some new angle that I can take, and so I just looked up whether or not these types of things are online, the financial disclosure forms, and
1: mm-hmm.
2: lo and behold, um, they're not, but they kind of are, because Judicial Watch, uh, which is actually a conservative organization, but also Center for Public Integrity, they both, in, in 2012, uh, for three two, year 2012, they have these up for various investigations that they were doing, and so both websites have these up. You can look them up for any uh, federal judge at mm-hmm. the district court level or, or or appeals court level. But yeah, so these now going back to your question, uh, you know, these cases were uh, ones that, while first of all, it was a district court case in Oklahoma and Western Oklahoma, and then the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals uh, in Oklahoma, and uh, both cases were Sierra Club v. United States uh, Army Corps of Engineers, mm-hmm. and uh, it was on the you know the, the premise of the case was. Uh, should uh, this pipeline have gone through the NEPA process rather than the nationwide permit 12 process? Because uh, it's basically this year of the Sierra Club is argument it's, these are significant infrastructure projects that all other precedent has shown uh, goes through the NEPA process. And so basically, those arguments lost at both the district court level and appeals court level. And then what I did from there is looked at who were the judges that decided on these cases, and you look at the District court level, and one of the judges in that case was a guy by the name of David Russell, who is a, or who, yeah, a, a Reagan appointee in the mm-hmm. 1980s. And uh, his financial disclosure report uh, shows that he has investments in at least two companies that do stand to gain from tar sands production. One of them is Occidental Petroleum; the other is a company called one Ox in like One Oklahoma.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And going to the Uh, Up to the appeals court level, uh, when I say he has financial ties, it means that you look at the levels of investments they have, and they have both combined tens of thousands of dollars of investments.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm looking at uh, Baldock, Judge Baldock's financial disclosure that you posted uh, along with your article. Oil and gas items, XTO Energy Production, BPM Production Company, ConocoPhillips, Sunco Oil and Gas Production, Great Western Drilling Company, El Paso Production Company. Uh, One after another after another investment in the energy industry, uh, and we're talking... Uh, at least uh, it looks like on most of these, at least fifteen thousand dollars in each, perhaps as much as fifty thousand dollars in each. Correct. Uh, they stand to make a lot of money from their own decisions. You seem to be arguing right. here, right? And yeah, and, and
2: um, yeah, so I mean, the next step after that in the investigation was looking at what are the ties to the tar sands for these particular companies and mm-hmm. um. Obviously, you know, so BP, um, Conoco, the big oil companies, XTO, which is a subsidiary of XM Mobile, those are all companies that actually do tar sands production in Alberta, um, but, and and Seneca or Suncor. So those are all literally companies that extract tar sands. But then there's a bunch of other companies like um, Occidental Petroleum, uh, One Ock, who have sort of indirect ties to the tar sands, whether it's through uh, pipelines um, and, and other related matters. But I think that Continental, in particular, is an interesting company. There's just an interesting substory here that kind of ties back to everything we've been talking about uh, with the northern leg and the southern leg and that sort of thing. And so um, their CEO, Harold Hamm, uh, who was actually President Romney's energy advisor in 2012, <laughs> he actually set up a lobbying group called Domestic Energy Producers Alliance uh, back in 2010, and that existed all the way through think, 2012, and they still exist. but they're not doing stuff that they were doing then uh, mm-hmm. anymore, I don't think, but they were essentially lobbying for um, a piece of, uh, of, the, of the northern leg of the pipeline to have uh, something that connects to the Bakken Shale uh, Basin in North Dakota, which, uh, where fracking takes place, and mm-hmm. they would have something called a Bakken Market Link that would connect and feed uh, Bakken oil through the Keystone XL, and so you look at that. And they're hoping to get uh, thirty-five thousand barrels per day of their own oil into that pipeline. It would be up to one hundred thousand barrels a day of uh, Bakken shale oil in in the Keystone XL Northern Line. So most people only think of the Keystone XL uh, sort of as a as a tar sands pipeline. That's, that is correct. There also would be a significant chunk of it that would be devoted to Bakken shale, and that ties back to Basically ties back to the lobbying efforts of Harold Ham and uh, I think that's a really interesting thing there. I mean, Harold Hamm is a very well-connected uh, figure in the world of oil. Um, he's featured in the in the one of the central characters in this book uh, called "The Frackers." And uh, I mean, one one other thing I'll add about him that I forgot yeah. to write in the investigation, but he um, so he's a major donor to Oklahoma University and one of the Instead of, uh, you know, one of the places where the, the, the appeals court heard the case, it actually wasn't at a courthouse. They heard oral arguments for this case at Oklahoma University. And, and of course, Harold Hamm is very well connected there. Well, There's a story.
0: Why were they? Why, why there? Why, yeah, why are they hearing a case at Oklahoma University?
2: Well, they claim that it was a, a, a great opportunity for you know, law students there to to see oral arguments. Um, of course, Harold Hamm is someone who's given $100 million to Oklahoma university for I mean it's for diabetes research it's a little bit separate than oil and gas kind of like how the Koch brothers give money to cancer research and that sort of thing but he I mean this is a guy who has put pressure on the the university to stop doing research on you know frackings Mm -hmm. links potential links to earthquakes and that sort of thing and so I think it I think it's kind of troubling that the hearing was held there. We don't really know.
0: It it, it is. Uh, And, Steve Horner, I've got just a few minutes left. There's a couple of points I want to make sure we hit. The um, uh, 2014 investigation by the Center for Public Integrity found that judges seldom recuse themselves nor face any punishment in cases like this, uh, despite the fact that uh, 28 U.S. Code Section 455 says about judges that Uh, When he or she knows that he individually or as a fiduciary or his spouse or minor child residing in the household has a financial interest in the subject matter in controversy or in a party to the proceeding or any other interest that could substantially be affected by the outcome of the proceeding, the judge shall recuse themselves. But in this case, they didn't. And is there any way now for the uh, Sierra Club uh, to appeal the decisions on the basis of the information that uh, that you dug up, Steve Horn, or at least file complaints with the—I uh, guess it's the U.S. Judicial Council—or is this a uh, a dead letter at this point? They lost the case; the judges got away with it.
2: Um, the latter is more likely, although I mean I I, I haven't talked to Sierra Club. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't think Sierra Club obviously. I didn't coordinate <laughs> this article with Sierra Club or anything, so I don't. Have any idea what their plans are next, but I'll, I'll definitely probably follow up now okay. that you mentioned that. And I mean, I think that there's, al- you can always do follow up mm-hmm. uh, stuff with courts and uh, with counsel and that sort of thing. So it's sort of one of those things that re- it remains to be seen, but just be based on precedent. Uh, Looking at the Center for Public Integrity investigation, it uh, doesn't look extremely promising.
0: So, you know, well, it's maddening to is- seeing this case after case. I had mentioned in uh, the opening, uh, you know, Clarence Thomas just blatantly getting away with this conflict of interest. Mart- Marty Feldman, Martin Feldman, not uh, the funny British actor Marty Feldman, but Mar- Judge Martin Feldman, down in the uh, in the Gulf case, uh, and now here, and these decisions affect this nation for decades. For decades, uh, you know, they're life and death decisions, and they seem to be just. There seems to be nobody to go to, nobody to, uh, you know, to to complain to, to hold these people accountable. I really do hope you'll talk uh, Steve Horn to the uh, uh, Sierra Club. I'll try to do so myself, and and see if we can see what next could be done to hold these folks accountable for not recu- You know, it's about the it's not even about conflict of interest the recusal is supposed to be about the appearance of conflict of interest it's supposed to prevent a conversation like you and i are having steve where we say hey did they make this decision because of you know th- their self interests uh, you know maybe they didn't maybe it had nothing to do with it uh, maybe they don't even realize they have these investments i don't know but it allows us to come in here and say hey wait was this decision Legitimate. And I think that's a, a, a serious concern, should be a serious concern for the judiciary. Um, Steve, very quickly, um, wh- where are we right now? You, you mentioned the imminent decision on the Keystone XL pipeline. Do we have any real idea when this final decision will actually be made by the, uh, by the Obama administration? And uh, if you have any tea leaves or wish to completely irresponsibly speculate about what he will decide, please feel free.
2: Well, you know, there were, there's been multiple lines of thought that I've been reading, at least in like Beltway, D.C. Press, and and uh, some thought some thought that he might make an announcement when he goes to the Arctic on um, uh, the Keystone XL pipeline, mm-hmm. although now I think that people may not think, you know, I think that there's some sort of change now that they've seen that he approved of Arctic drilling and uh, more offshore Arctic drilling, and so um, I, I think that's unlikely now that I think that, uh, that would just be. I think people it, it it wouldn't even be accepted the way that he would have wanted it to. Now that people are so angry about Arctic drilling, so I kind of doubt that it'll happen during his Arctic trip. And I think other people think that it that uh, I've seen other speculation that it could happen as sort of a Friday news dump sort of thing during congressional re- recess. And so, if if anything going to happen, I think it's more likely to be one of those the next this week or next week or something sometime in August. And if it doesn't uh-huh. happen in August, and I have. No clue when it's going to happen. So it's either going to happen in the next couple of weeks, or else I have no speculation. Well,
0: right the, w- the way you're speculating, it sounds like you're you're saying he's going to approve it. I- I- am I reading? What oh you're no, saying? I,
2: I, I think that I think that he would actually potentially. I mean, if you want me to guess, what he's going to yes, do, I want you to be say. completely irresponsible yeah. <laughs> and take a guess. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that he would say. No to it, but I do think that it's somewhat of a cynical no, given what we're talking about with the southern leg of the pipeline and all this oil already flowing to the Gulf and you know he would stand up there and say, "Well, this is you know it did fail my carbon test or my uh, climate test and that sort of thing. I think that uh, you know, it, he would be unfortunately championed for it by." Many factions, without mentioning all the stuff that we've been talking about.
0: He does so seem far in the segment. He, he does seem to try to have it both ways, and a little bit later right. on on this. Uh, well, we, we've been talking on our Green News Report about the uh, trying to square the circle between uh, allowing the Arctic drilling that he's doing and at the same time planning a visit to the Arctic. To say, hey, we got to do something about global warming. It just doesn't seem to make sense those two different ideas. And but you know what, Steve? Maybe you hit on something. Maybe if he goes up there and says, oh, and by the way, I'm rejecting Keystone XL, that might blunt the uh, seeming obvious contradiction of approving Arctic uh, drilling, even while he's up in the Arctic talking about uh, concerns about global warming. It's very strange. Uh, he he really does like to pick sure both sides of the street, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, uh, Steve Horn. Great talking to you about this. Really appreciate your digging into this uh, matter. Please keep at it, and please stay in touch as you move forward. Uh, and, and particularly if we get any comment from the Sierra Club, because I, I think they got a case to go in there and and um, at least make some complaint against these two judges. Steve Horn, check out his work. Uh, he's a freelance investigative journalist and writer for Desmogblog.com, which is an absolutely fantastic site for all things uh, environmental. Uh, not to be missed if you give a damn about the planet you happen to live on. Steve, great to talk to you today, my friend.
2: Awesome to be on. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. Check his work out also on the Twitters at Steve A horn. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we're back with much more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial.
1: Alright,
0: welcome back to Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. My thanks to Steve Horn from Desmogblog. Interesting point, Desi Doyen, about that Arctic trip. I really am starting to wonder uh, because it just doesn't make sense. He gives final approval for uh, drilling in the Arctic, uh, Barack Obama does, and then he goes up there. To, and, you know, he put out a video, the White House put out a video about announcing this president, the first presidential visit right. ever for a sitting president up to the Arctic. And he goes on and on about the threats that specifically that they're facing up there in the Arctic in Alaska. Because uh, of climate because change. Because of climate change. And I don't know how you stand out there with the with with, with Shell Oil's. uh rig in the background uh, you know cracking open the Arctic for the first time and and, and talk about how we, we got to get off fossil fuels so maybe just maybe he'll announce that he's uh, doing away with the that he's not approving the Keystone XL pipeline
1: Well I think it's a reasonable speculation as to whether that's going to be part of the trip that uh, Obama takes up past the Arctic Circle you know he had said in previous interviews that he felt like he could not, say that you can't drill in the Arctic, that we have a responsibility to go ahead and allow it. So it's one of these, these weird... Why did
0: he say... Wait, he said he felt... he he could not He was asked no? on
1: Twitter how yeah. can you approve Arctic drilling, right. and he said on Twitter you can't really stop it. And that's not actually true. ClimateProgress.org covered this. They said that actually the president has wide latitude to prevent and to protect certain areas from development, but that is a years-long process, so you know, any guess as to what is actually going on in this, this weird, maybe it's a mm-hmm. chess game that he's got going, I don't know, in some kind of fashion. And,
0: and curiously you've got uh, Hillary, part Parting ways, saying she's against it, but then on the Keystone XL pipeline, she hasn't said anything one way or another. Uh, Although she's kind of indicating that she would be against it, but that's easy to do when she knows she won't have to make the decision and that it's up to Obama, and she's just going to go with whatever it is, so he can approve it, and then she could say, "Oh, what a mistake that was." Oh well. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, since those judges in that last story we were talking about face no accountability, let me give you some quick accountability news before we get out. Remember that uh, January 24, uh, 2014, that horrible chemical spill in the river that uh, in uh, West Virginia. West Virginia. That's right. Freedom Industries, and it was chemicals that was used that were used to, I think, clean coal. Right. Correct. To, to scrub coal. I don't want to say clean coal because there's. It's washed. No you necessary. wash, the, wash coal, the coal, and this is
1: the toxic, contaminated water left behind after washing all the nasty stuff off of already nasty coal.
0: And these chemicals were left in these tanks on the right at the, at the edge of the river. And uh, what do you know? The chemicals leaked. It uh, sullied tap water for hundreds of thousands of people across West Virginia— and uh, the company turned out to be a company by the name of Freedom Industries. Always these Freedom American patrol, what, uh, you know, because, you know, destroying water and air is apparently the most patriotic thing you could do. In any case, uh, usually there there's no real accountability for these executives who who whose companies end up uh, poisoning people, killing people, etc. Well, now uh, some good news here. Freedom Industries president Gary Southern, British guy, actually. um, He's the one who famously, remember the video? Uh, When this chemical spill was going on and nobody could drink their water across the state, it was terrible. It it stank. They had to shut down schools. Uh, There was no drinking water. They had to bring in bottled water. He sat there in front of the cameras, was asked about this by reporters at the time, sipping from bottled water. Remember that? And he was like, look, guys, it's been an extremely long day.
1: I'm done here. Yeah, I'm, I'm done. ready I, to go. I have
0: trouble talking about it at the moment. I'd appreciate it if we could wrap this thing up. That's what he said as he was sipping a nice cold bottle of water that nobody else across the state was able to get. Uh, in any case, he has now uh, pled guilty to three pollution charges. He faces a minimum of 30 days in prison, but a maximum of three years. We'll see what he gets uh, from this plea deal. He also faces a fine of up to 300000 that ain't much. And perhaps restitution. Um, the, uh, in, in, uh, in court documents, apparently the prosecutors uh, considered the uh, U.K. citizen, Terry Southern, to be a uh, flight risk because he's got a pilot's license and a plane. But they said a tracking device wouldn't work on him because his Marco Island, Florida house was too big.
1: That's just weird. I
0: don't even know what that means. Why so, would a tracking so wait, device a guy not work? has
1: a guy is wealthy enough yeah. to have a huge house in Florida where a yeah. tracking device wouldn't work on him, yet he's only going to be required to pay. A small amount of money, to me, $300,000 maximum fine, that's the maximum, yeah. is not enough to make up for the cost of all of those people, 300,000 of them in Charleston, losing their water system. Uh,
0: that's right. And uh, the government had seized, just to give you an idea of how much money he has, so they had seized $7.3 and a Bentley from Southern and put his uh, put a lien on his Florida house. Uh, But uh, he will at least spend 30 days in prison, I guess. So there's that. Um, And on Tuesday, uh, another uh, Freedom executive, Dennis Farrell, pleaded guilty to a deal that uh, also includes 30 days to two years in prison and up to $200,000 in fines. What they did was, remember, they immediately declared bankruptcy. Right. A fake bankruptcy. As soon as everything went south, Uh, And it looked like they were going to be liable for all kinds of things. They immediately declared uh, bankruptcy. So uh, businesses and residents who uh, struggled without clean water, according to the AP, are watching closely several ongoing court cases that will dictate if they are ever paid back for their hardships. A class action suit is ongoing against the chemicals producer, Eastman Chemical and West Virginia American Water, the utility uh, whose water supply became laced with chemicals. So that's all in the days ahead. Oh, it reminds me we need to get our friend Bob Kincaid on the show from West Virginia. Uh, he'll tell us what's really going on. Make a note of that, Desi Doyen. Uh, all right, one last point before we get out. Uh, Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert is coming back. You can rest easy. Uh, he tells AP that he's itching to get started as, as host of the uh, CBS Late Show. Uh, in September, he says, quote, every night I light a candle that Donald Trump stays in the race until September 8." <laughs> he said, but I also hope that nobody gets that candle too close to his hair. There you go. Stephen Colbert. He's he'll be back. Never fear. Uh, my thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess. And uh, of course, to our guest, Steve Horn from Desmogblog.com. If you missed any portion of this program, you may download it now from BradBlog. or iTunes where we hope you'll give us a good review. Drop me email. I am Bradcast at Bradblog.com. Find and follow me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the BradBlog. All right, until next time, tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.